chapter 2, and uh, there were half sheets in the carrying posts or out on the back, and if you didn't get one, um, I'm not sure if there's a stack in here or not, but maybe look off a buddy next to you if you don't have one, that's fine too. It is structured just a little bit differently today, and I'll explain why that is. Uh, Last week, chapter 1 had just the right number of verses to fit on a half sheet, and this one had, you know, 49 verses, so we couldn't do the verse-by-verse option like last week, so we chunked it a little bit, and, but it's still kind of following the same flow, and I want, um, there is intention to that, I, I want us to see how the text is put together as a story, and that's what this is, it's a story, and so you can see on, like, the little a under 2-1, when we say the narrative main line, we talked about that last week. That's when the story's just filling us in on the kind of tangential details, like, and this happened, and that happened, and he said, and they went. Just very simple story structure. And then when the author breaks from that narrative main line, that's where he's trying to stop us on something. And we have a lot of conversation tonight. There's actually, if you look at the points, uh, it's not really points, but kind of the the outline. Each of those main focuses are conversations between people. And what they're saying is actually profoundly theological. And and that's what I think Daniel's point is as he unfolds the the story in chapter 2, is he's going to make another theological point that's sort of a corollary from what we saw last week. So uh, we better just get rolling so we can uh, get through here. So let's read the first, the first block here and kind of maybe let's get some volunteers to read. Would that be something we can do? All right. Do you want to read verses 1 through 5? And then someone want to do 6 through 11? 6 through 11. This side has one point. So if you guys want to keep up, Dan, oh, Brittany. Brittany, 6 through 11. Okay, uh, so go ahead. Chapter 2, verses 1. We're going to read 1 through 11. You'll do 1 through 5. All right, thank you. Okay, so looking at your outline, very simple structure. 1 and 2 is kind of just the what's happening. And then we get to a conversation between King Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldeans. And what's happening, the king had a dream, he wants to figure out what it means, but there's a little twist to the story. He's not going to tell them what his dream was and let them come up with something. He's asking them, tell me what my dream was, and then interpret it. So just in case you didn't catch that extra little flair, that's why this group is like, we cannot do this. And it kind of goes back and forth. And that's what this first conversation is. So I'm going to actually throw it out to you. Last week, we tried to look for some things that are uh, repeated in chapter 1. Did you notice any idea that was repeated in verses 1 through 11, or 3 through 11, to be specific? There's, there's actually one thing that comes up abundantly. So kind of look back down. What are we, what are we talking about here? Yeah, Mark. Okay, so you just said the exact, in that statement, you said the words I'm after. What does the king want? Okay, that was one of the words he used. There's another one. He wants to know. He wants to know something. And actually, that idea, if you scan down through, and there's a lot of words for it, tell know, interpret, reveal. Later on, we're going to get to this idea of mysteries and riddles. And the king wants to know the mystery. And he's, try, he's trying to know something. He's trying to find knowledge. And where does he go to get his answer? He goes to his, and it's air quotes for a reason, his wise men. And what they respond with is, we're not capable of this. Okay, let's look at it again. Uh, verse 7. They answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream. We will give his interpretation. 
So you, get, you tell us, we will interpret. King answered and said, I know, which by the way, like, there's another repetition of that word, I know, just in a slightly different context. I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm if you do not make known the dream. Uh, a lot of bad things will happen, right? Uh, you've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words. Like, wh- what is that? Uh, when you lie, you're deceiving, you're, you're masking truth. You're not telling or letting him know. So it's like all the, this whole dialogue is about, I want to know, and you need to tell me, or I'm going to kill you. It's like kind of high stakes, you know. This is like the original, who wants to be a millionaire? Okay, answer the question, you get everything you want. If you don't, actually the, the terminology, uh, the limb from limb in verse 5 is actually really vivid terminology. Um, we're gonna, I'm going to take one limb and put it over there, and I'm going to take the other limb and we're going to put it over there. Um, so we want to th- know. Like the Chaldeans want to know because they don't want to die. The king wants to know. And if you go back, I think it was verse 3. Uh, I want you just for a moment to compare verse 1 and verse 3. So verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar has dreams, his spirit is troubled, and his sleep left him. So that's, that's kind of the, the setting of the, of the story. When it repeats this idea about his spirit being anxious, what does it add in verse 3? Just to highlight the repetition one more time. His spirit is anxious, what? To know. So just like chapter 1, it was that repetition of give, give, God gave, God gave, God gave. Here, this dialogue is all about knowing. And what do the Chaldeans say? We cannot do this. Uh, This is in verse 10 and 11. Maybe back up a little bit. There's, There's the verse where he says, uh, they say this is not for the earth dwellers. Uh, I know verse 11 is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there's no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And so they recognize as men we can't pull this off. We need help. But then they make a very profound theological statement there in verse 11. Someone want to summarize What's their theological belief in verse 11 about gods? Anyone want to take a stab at it? The Chaldeans? Well, they admit that the gods are not part of the mortal world. Yeah. What do the gods have that the Chaldeans and the king want? Knowledge. Well, they've got it. But what's the problem? And this is a problem for them and their theological framework. Well, you want knowledge, king. You want us to give you that knowledge. We don't have the knowledge. They have the knowledge. Yeah, what were you saying, Carl? Yeah, did you kind of catch that idea of, well, the gods have the knowledge, but they're not with us. They're not here. And the the actual language is like earth and not earth. It's like, yeah, we're down here. All those gods up there, out there, they know these things. They could tell you the dreams, but we can't. And I think that's key because of what's going to happen. It's like, is that a, a correct theological belief about the gods? You know, if, if there was a god, is it true that he has the knowledge and he doesn't share it? Let me chew on that idea for a moment. If, if there is a god out there, and this is Chaldean thinking, yeah, he has all that knowledge, but he doesn't share it. And obviously, here at Maranatha Baptist Church, we know maybe there's something wrong with that statement, right? And we're going to get to that. So I'm just going to keep moving. So verse 12. The next dialogue we're going to get to is between Daniel, here's our hero coming in, and Arioch. Someone want to read 12 through 16? Dan's got it. The right side is up two to one. If you're keeping track at home, go ahead, Dan. All right. So we're going to do the same thing we did with the last little section. You can see in your notes, 12 through 14, not anything 
super profound. It's just, and this happened, and this happened. It's giving us important details. But then again, what we're looking for is a slowing down or a repetition. So, throw it out to the, to the crowd. What is repeated in these verses? Or where does the story slow down? So, maybe back up for just a moment. What we're doing right now is we're practicing good observation skills, which is key to Bible study. So, any idea of what, what's repeated here? Asking for time. Okay, we're on the right track here. Asking for time. What could you maybe put along with that idea? What is, what is Daniel goes and asks for time, but then when Daniel speaks, what did he say? Okay, is there anything he specifically wonders about the king's decree? Yeah, do you see that again? Look, look down at that. Uh, verse 15. So here we come to a stop in the story, a dialogue. This is Hebrew narrative. We're going to stop and focus exactly on what Daniel said. Why is this decree so urgent? And when he goes to the king, okay, give me the time, or at what time do you want me to do this? And so that's going to connect to an idea that I think is in the previous verses too. So maybe verse 14. Do you see any ideas repeated in in word choices? Yeah, there we go. Discernment, counsel, wisdom. Okay, what would you say uh, if I was like, you know, there's a time for everything. Like maybe there's a place in the Bible written by a really wise man. It's like, you know, for everything, there's a time and a season. Which if you're not tracking with me, that's Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And so we would say, knowing the right time is wise. And to do something at the wrong time would be foolish. So here we, we come to Daniel, and he's seeing this situation unfold. His friends these wise men, and it's not just Hebrews, from all of these conquered nations, remember chapter 1, they're brought to Babylon, they're trained for years, and now after all that training, the king has a couple of bad nights of sleep, and he's killing his friends. And literally, Ariok's there to kill Daniel. Like That's why they're talking in the story, is Daniel's about to die. And he's like, well, hold, hold on. Can you explain why this is so urgent? He's, he's, his speech is just filtering wisdom. And we kind of covered this last week. What's the beginning of wisdom? Fear of the Lord. It shouldn't surprise us that a godly young man is really wise. And so you see here the repetition of an idea is wisdom, which is really close to knowledge, Right? But it's not exactly the same thing. And I'm not so sure if this is, on a scale of 1 to 10, I'm not so sure how intentional this was. But I do think there's a little tension here from the king and the Chaldeans and this discussion of the gods and their knowledge. And then now we get to Daniel. And we're not using knowledge anymore. We're talking about wisdom and skill and discernment, it's, it's a completely different choice of words when Daniel's there. And that's going to affect the rest of the story. Uh, so the theological statements or theological ideas here is, again, it's, it's highlighting wisdom exemplified through Daniel in that section. I think that's what's going on in 2, 12 through 16. So just keep moving, because we just, we just don't have enough time. We want to be wise, right? So uh, does someone want to read maybe 17 through 20? 17 through 20? Awesome. And then someone want to do 21 through 24? Three to two. This is shaping up to be a very Iowa football score type of a night. Okay. So let's start with 20, and then 24 to, well, make sure I get it right. 17 to 20, 20 to 24. All right, so third time, we're going to do the exact same thing. 
So, uh, 17 through 19, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. Where does the story stop here? Start with that question. Where does the author here stop you on something specific? What's happening? A prayer. Now, this, is, this happens all the time in Old Testament narrative. Uh, like Jonah. Okay, now, if I ask you what Jonah's about, and you have to summarize it in one word. Someone want to take a stab? Faith. Faith? Okay, that's good. But I think most people would say fish. Okay? Now, and this, and this is kind of the point of why we're doing this observation. In Jonah, you could turn to Jonah 2 or 3, the end of chapter 2, and the narrative main line is, and he was swallowed by a fish, and he was vomited out on dry ground. In between that narrative main line, what happened to Jonah? He sinks to the bottom, he's in the belly of the fish, and he prays. And so, actually, what the narrator there is doing, which is probably Jonah, He's trying to highlight his prayer of repentance. Like, the fish is an afterthought in the book of Jonah from, from a Hebrew narrative standpoint. What's, what the, the focus is put on is that prayer, and that's exactly what happens here. Is Daniel, find, like, we, you could really focus on this dream idea in this text. And that is a, a kind of a repetition where he's dreaming dreams, and I want to know the dream, and then, oh, Daniel knows the dream, and we're going to look specifically at the dream in a moment. But in this section, it's not really the dream at all, or, oh, Daniel got the interpretation of the dream. It's a prayer, like a direct dialogue between God and Daniel, right? So let's see what is repeated in that prayer. And it's themes that have come up before, right? I heard something. Praise. Praise. Okay, now that's a new one. We haven't seen that really repeated yet, but what does he do? He blesses. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. I thank you, verse 23. So there's, uh, and again, to kind of put it with our idea of this character that we're building, which it's a narrative. And so at this point, if you've never heard of Daniel before, you're still pretty new to who he is. You know he's wise, and he's disciplined, and he's pure. But then you also know that he worships the Lord, like very clearly here. That is an emphasis. What ideas that were repeated earlier come up in the prayer? Knowledge. Knowledge, And what else? Wisdom. So we start off the story, and we get this dialogue between the king and the Chaldeans. And what does the king desperately want? Knowledge, 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 knowledge. And the Chaldeans say, we don't have knowledge. We don't have knowledge. We don't have knowledge. The gods have it, but they don't share it. We're on earth. We don't have those things. They have them, but they're out there. And then you have a conversation with Daniel and Arioch. And he's like, well, why do we need to do it right now? Do we have time to maybe think about this? And in the back of Daniel's mind, he's saying, do I have time to go home and pray about this? You know, like, and they do. They pray, and then what do we find out here? Oh, well, God, God, capital G, not the gods. God has knowledge. He has wisdom. He actually does a whole bunch of things there. Uh, For wisdom and power or might are his. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. God has it. And he shares it. Now, we've talked about this last week and we've mentioned it a couple times tonight. There are prerequisites to that knowledge. The beginning of wisdom is fear the Lord. We talked about last week, that's not just... When you get into that fear or love language, it's, it's effectual language. God is commanding an emotional response to him. And that's kind of weird for us to think about. It's like, how do you command someone to love you? Uh, you know, any married couples in here stand at the altar and say, you are now required, legally obligated to love me. 
Is that what your marriage was like? At the, hopefully. I hope that's not how it started. Because that doesn't work, right? It's not how we think about love as an emotion. But in the Old Testament, God commands, like the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so how does that work? And wisdom, I think, would teach us that our affections should be in accord with truth. So if I have a feeling or an emotion about something that's not appropriately balanced to what I know to be true, that would no longer be an ordinate desire or affection. Like it'd be wrong for me to want that if it was out of balance with truth. And that's why we're trying to think this through theologically. Daniel's affections are properly ordered because he's the only one here that has correct theology. The king does not have correct theology. He's running, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. We have this on the back of the sheet. But the king's answer for knowledge is man. The Chaldeans' answer is, we're not able to do this and we don't have a relationship with God. We don't, he doesn't tell us those things. That's not Daniel and his friend's answer. Their answer is, we pray, we trust, we love, and the God of wisdom and knowledge shares. And just to tease a little bit, you know, what if it doesn't work exactly the way you plan it? Like, your life's on the line, and you like just have to get thrown into a big fiery furnace. You're not sure if you're going to die or not. Well, so far, chapter 1 and chapter 2, problem gets solved really easily. The next chapter, it doesn't get solved that way. Like, they get murdered. And, and God, you know, you know the story on that too, that he saves them. But they, they're willing to die. Like, they don't have a quick solution. Like, here, it seems almost too convenient. Like, well, let me pray about that. Oh, I got it. You know, like, let me go home and think about that. Oh, yeah, I know your dream. But th- th- it really highlights what God is able to do. And if we fear him and we love him, we walk in wisdom, this is how God works. He shares wisdom and knowledge to those who have understanding. Uh, we better keep going. So uh, what, I, what I put here after that section is just to remind you, this is where we see Daniel's theology reflected again, but th- this is the idea that we built from chapter 1. I just want to pause and think about that again. What was the point of chapter 1? God is in control over all the affairs of man, the nations, the earth, etc. This truth should affect the way I think and the decisions I make. So really quickly, before we move on, does that theological idea live itself out in Daniel's life in chapter 2? Yes, no, kind of. Yeah. So let's, using the, the description that the Bible uses in that section, how does Daniel exemplify that that's what he believes? God. He trusts, and because he trusts, what did he do? Obeyed, Obeyed prayed. So um, that's, the, that's the answer I'm looking for. So he prays, and God answers the prayer, and then he prays again, and we have one of those prayers directly recorded. The idea here is we would agree with that bold statement, right? All of us in this room would say, yeah, I believe that. But we have significantly less difficult, uh, I guess, degree of difficulty problems than this. Like, I've never had someone show up and say, Charlie, if you can't solve this problem, I'm going to kill you. It's never happened to me. Uh, If that ever happens at faith, like, Lord bless us. I hope it doesn't, but... I've never been in a situation like that. But, you know, I mentioned last week, I have a lot of car problems. I've, sh- I've shared with a couple of you this trip I took from Sunday to today. Every flight I was on was either uh, a plane was broken down or delayed. We sat on the tarmac forever or whatever. Everything went wrong. And in, the, the degree is so much less with those difficulties But that still is an opportunity to exemplify if I really believe this theology. Like when the plane doesn't work, 
or you know, not even my plane. The other plane breaks down and we can't get to our gate and now, oh, we're going to miss a flight. Do I really believe God's in control? And if I do in that moment, how will that shape the way I think when I recognize my affections in that moment? Like when you miss a flight, you're never like, oh, this is great, you know? How, how does that theology then affect how I process that trial. And we see a very good example of that in Daniel. This is the principle he believes, and we're going to modify it on the the back sheet, but we already know this was his point from chapter 1, and we see that very true in chapter 2, that he fully trusts that his life is in God's hands. Nebuchadnezzar's not in control. God's in control. And I just wanted to highlight that again. Now, we have to get to like the big, the big daunting chunk here. Uh, so, uh, 25 through 45, let's g- maybe get three volunteers here. So, maybe like 25 through, math is so hard. Maybe we'll just get three, and you guys can divide it on your own. How's that sound? Any, any takers want to start at verse 25? Anyone? Don't be shy. We all love each other. Here's one. Okay, let's go 25 through like 32. And then, Jim, I saw your hand. If you want to pick it up in 33 and maybe go to like 39. And then someone over here. Yes, Ms. Felderman, if you want to read the rest. Okay, sound good? Okay, starting in verse 25. Awesome. I don't know about you. It's fun just reading scripture together, isn't it? Yeah. So, uh, there's, there's too much here. There's too much here, okay? Now, I've, I've been through a handful of Daniel surveys or Sunday school classes, and in um, every one of those, I feel like that little box there on your sheet gets really hit hard. So it's really awesome when we have a sense of prediction and prophecy in the Bible, and I do not want to undermine that at all. But I, just, I don't want to focus on the historical side of it. As we said last week, we're going to try and focus on the scriptural, practical side of this. And so it does, we, we do see that God knows things that are going to happen a long time in advance. So this is typically that little box of the image. That's typically how we have historically interpreted these different divisions of that statue. That these are the nations that come who they are, so he very clearly says to Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold, like you're the one ruling right now. And then there's a succession of kingdoms that will follow, and we typically assign these nations to that. And uh, you can essentially Google this information. It's, you know, a Bible teacher or any type of teacher. It's all out there. If you want to go and, like, really see dates and kings and battles, if you're really into that history... It's out there for you. I could give you some tips on some further study books or resources. I just, as I studied it, I really didn't want to focus on that. So if that's what you came for, I'm so sorry. But I don't want to focus on the image. Just to simply say, God in that dream gives a prediction of the nations that are going to rule that area of the world. And he does it very accurately. And at the end, Daniel's to remind Nebuchadnezzar that Above all of these kingdoms is a kingdom that is going to be hewn out of the mountain, not by a human hand, and it's going to rule forever. And that is very clearly God's kingdom. And if you want to talk about that, man, chapter 7 and on is going to be a lot of eschatology. Okay? So we'll get to that. We'll get to those discussions. For now, just do our normal practice. What do we see repeated in this very large section of, it is technically dialogue. A lot of it is just mainly Daniel talking. So what do we see? And I tried to help us with these last ones. There's a heavy repetition of that idea of knowledge again. Verse 28, 45, 47, we're talking about knowing. And Daniel knows, and he's telling what he knows because God told him what this dream meant. He gave him the interpretation. If I had to circle one verse in this chapter, say this is what it's about. It's verse 28. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. 
Think about the theology of these three groups of people. The king does not believe that statement. The Chaldeans did not believe that statement. Daniel and his friends are the only ones that believed that and acted upon it and then demonstrated it. That there is a God who is in control of everything, and guess what he's also in control of? Knowledge. There's nothing he doesn't know. Nothing. And he will share that in wisdom with those who fear him, with his people. And so, verse 28, I love that verse. There is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known Very specific emphasis. Daniel's not making it known. I think it's the very next verse or right in that context where he says, it's not my wisdom. It's not Daniel. The God of heaven who reveals secrets, he has made known to you, Nebuchadnezzar, your dream. And, you know, this this is Old Testament evangelism. Like, Daniel doesn't have the gospel nebuchadnezzar jesus died for your sins and he rose the third day and he's offering you forgiveness if you would trust him if you'd repent like he doesn't have that message what does he have there's a god in heaven who is still in control of everything even though you've conquered our nation and he's the one that gave you that dream he's the one that helped me know what the dream was and he's the one that interpreted the dream that God in heaven is revealing this to you, Nebuchadnezzar. Like, and to think about, historically, the reality of Nebuchadnezzar is not challenged. Like, this is an all-powerful like, dictator in the ancient world. And here is like a, little, a teenager speaking to that king and saying that. This is, this is a hugely profound verse. And it's just, you know, imagine like pick a teen guy from our youth group right now put him in the White House with Joe Biden, and everyone's watching. What's he going to say? You know, And for that kid to say, no, this is what's true. I know you think you know what's true. It's not. This is what's true. There is a God in heaven that reveals secrets. Awesome verse. Okay, we've got to keep going. Just in case you didn't catch it, as we read, one of those big themes from chapter 1 is repeated again. Chapter 1, and God gave, and God gave, and God gave. Look at 36 through 38. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You are a king of kings, for the God of heavens has given you a kingdom. He brings up the theological point he made in chapter 1. Only now, who's he teaching it to? Nebuchadnezzar. It's like, this whole kingdom that you have? Yeah, you're a king of all the kings. You're, you're the top dog. And God gave you that. Again, imagine a teenager saying, and to be fair, Nebuchadnezzar's probably not that old, but it's still, there's still a gap. <laughs> At least, you know, Nebuchadnezzar could kill Daniel if he wanted to. So there's a, there's a, there's a power gap here. And say, yeah, your kingdom's great. God gave that to you. Clear expression of God's sovereignty. Uh, I think that's great. Another great repetition of that idea again. Verses 44 through 45, I think we see the connection in Daniel's mind of how he knows this. Because he, he does know that God's kingdom is greater than Nebuchadnezzar's. It will, it, you know, to say, when you say God's kingdom, you kind of really have to qualify what you're saying. Like, at that point, does God have an earthly kingdom that's greater than Nebuchadnezzar's? No. But his reign, his control is always greater than any earthly king. And certainly what's being pointed out here is there is a future day where there will be an earthly kingdom that is absolutely perfect. And at this time, I don't think Daniel has any perspective of this. But hindsight, we do. Second Samuel 7, Jesus is going to be the king of that kingdom. Like th- This is... Jesus' earthly reign that we are looking forward to, uh, it it's, will not be rivaled by any other kingdom of the earth. And, you know, you want to just dwell on something fun for a moment. Just meditate on that. You know, like what the millennial kingdom will be like. We've got to keep going. 
So I think to connect all of those things together, little I, little I, I, little I, 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 uh, this is trying to encapsulate and build upon Daniel's theological idea. He knows God's in control, but it's not just over earthly kingdoms. It's, it extends to knowledge and wisdom in this chapter. And then we get an added dimension of, and God's kingdom will conquer all other kingdoms someday. So there is a sense of retribution being added into this. After all of these other earthly kingdoms get their shot, God will win because he's in control of all the affairs of men. Um, I don't want to glide by it. Uh, we want to look at the king's response there. And uh, so really verse 47. And... Uh, Really why I want to highlight this now is that you're going to see some more working in Nebuchadnezzar's life. There's a really interesting question we can ask in a couple of chapters, like, does Nebuchadnezzar really get it? And this is, if if we do come to a conclusion that he does, this is certainly the starting point of that. But how much does he understand at this point? Uh, The king answered Daniel and said, or going back to verse 46, King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face prostrate before Daniel. Not a great sign. Uh, it's almost like he didn't listen to the warning of Daniel, like, this isn't me, it's God. And he, Nebuchadnezzar worships Daniel. Probably doesn't get it all at this point. Uh, he commands that they should present an offering and incense to Daniel. Not a great sign. But verse 47 is good. We're getting some theological language from the king. Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings. That is a really interesting statement. I don't know if we can say he's only paying lip service to the idea. I think Nebuchadnezzar in that moment is kind of blown away. I mean, just, I can barely remember what I had for breakfast, let alone a dream from last night. And then to have some somewhat random stranger come in, tell me my dream perfectly, would absolutely blow my mind. And I think you're seeing that expressed a little bit here, and you're seeing kind of a pivot from bad theology to good theology. Okay, you're right, Daniel. Your God is the Lord. He's the Lord of kings, which is including him. It's like interesting theological discussion here. He is a revealer of secrets because you could reveal the secret. So there's a a little pivot of belief here. We'll come back to that as uh, Nebuchadnezzar continues on his uh, interesting theological journey. So flip the sheet over. We've got not a lot of time. Uh, Number one is sort of a summary of just kind of what we did tonight. I hope that's evident. Um, What I've learned over time is that this really makes sense to me because I wrote it. But, you know... I know there's going to be things on this paper that you're like, what are you talking about? Okay? And I, come and find me on Sunday or tonight or whatever. But so just to walk through them. King Nebuchadnezzar, what, what are the theological views and tension here? He asks men to do something that men will typically struggle to do. Interpret dreams they've never heard. We hear that and it makes very, it's, it's rational. Yeah, that's dumb. Like, why would he ask them that? Right? Uh, they don't know it, and they'll probably just make it up. (laughs) That's what I would do. Uh, He gets frustrated that his wise people aren't wise enough. So what is he trusting in? It's a complete view. It's man-centered wisdom at this point. So he turns to the Chaldeans, and they know men are not capable of accomplishing what the king is asking. They also know that there are some gods, lowercase g, that do know what the king wants to know, Uh, But they also believe they don't have access to those gods or the wisdom that they possess. Then we have Daniel. He knows man is not capable of accomplishing the king's task alone, which is really close to what the Chaldeans believe. But where it changes is then what he knows about God. He also knows that God is in control and is the source of wisdom and understanding While the Chaldeans see the gods as not dwelling with the earth dwellers, Daniel and his three friends specifically ask God for the answer to their problem. So just like last week, try to boil it to a theological point. 
Daniel's theological point, God's sovereign reign extends to his complete knowledge of all mysteries and riddles. God is a source of wisdom and shares it with those who fear him. And as we've said, because he really profoundly believes that theology, you see it lived out. When he's about to die, what does he do? How does he solve the problem? Uh, Just, you know, he saves the life of probably hundreds of kids. Pretty, pretty heroic act here. And uh, that is accomplished through his theology. If he doubts God in those moments, he doesn't pray, uh, he dies. Uh, and so theology is really practical, <laughs> right? So at the end of the, the sheet there, uh, we don't really have time to elaborate on this, but what, how does this theological truth become practical, uh, God's sovereignty over wisdom and knowledge, if we really believe he knows and he will share, like he's not the author of confusion, as we already highlighted, that would be a huge motivator to pray. Now, the difference between us and Daniel is we don't expect dreams and visions because we have a completed canon of Scripture. So as a part of this, if we really believe God is the revealer of secrets and he has revealed them in his word. It's not just an activity of prayer. It's also an activity of seeking the word. And so asking for help, and that would be, I think, exemplified through our devotional life of prayer and and scripture reading. And uh, I always, in these moments, like, and you're doing that. Because how many other adults come to Bible study on Wednesday nights, right? Like, I was on the plane today, and there's a guy from Des Moines, and I was trying to, like, subtly hint, like, he's, he's, uh, he lives in Windsor Heights. And I'm like, hey, you know, there's a Bible class on Daniel tonight at 7, and he was like, you're nuts. So most people don't do this. So you're off to a great start on that one. So, um, and then the last, last two kind of go together here. Knowing what you know. And this is just reaffirming that you believe the theology you say you believe. There's a reason why we have doctrinal statements. If, if our faith was based on the way we felt, every day you'd lose your salvation. Just be real. It's not about what you feel. It's about what you know is true of God and your emotions don't change what he objectively always is, which is sovereign knower of all secrets and wisdom and sharing that with you in Christ. Like that never changes. And so it's, it's practical just to know your theology because there's times where you feel like it's not happening. But knowledge of theology should direct those affections. It shouldn't be um, subordinate to your emotion. And that's actually very anthropologically important for Christians to understand that. It's your truth that should flow to emotion, not the other way around. And so just simply knowing what you know is, is very practical. This is what God has revealed, and this is true. Very good. And then I love this quote here. It, I think knowing that God is a source of wisdom is helpful just to know what is true. And it's also helpful to know what you can't know. Uh, here's this quote from this book. Uh, and I've modified it just slightly. Knowing you do not know what you do not know unless the one who knows what you do not know tells you. Um, so I have interacted with believers before that they're almost paranoid that there's something out there they don't know, just like the king. Like, well, what if, what if I've got some deep, dark, secret sin that I don't even know about, and I'm not confessing it, which means, you know, I'm not walking in the fear of the Lord because there's a sin I don't even know about. And it's like, hold on. You think God knows that? Yeah. Well, if God hasn't brought that to bear in your own life yet, he hasn't revealed that to you in your walk of sanctification, why do you need to worry about it? You don't know what you don't know unless the one who knows what you don't know tells you, reveals it through his word. And so it's kind of just a really weird way of saying, take it a day at a time. And I think Daniel would uh, give a stamp of approval to that idea. So, 
Uh, I hope that's helpful. Sorry. We started three minutes late. We went three minutes late. You know, rats. Um, but, you know, when I watch a football game, overtime is usually good. So take it for what it's worth. Um, let me close in prayer. We'll plan on Daniel 3 next week. And uh, thankful that you're here. I'd uh, love to sit down and talk with you more about this. This is, I'm a weird guy that just likes to translate and read books and this is like my whole life. And so I'd love to sit down and get coffee and talk about it with you if, you if you have any questions. So thanks for being here. We'll close in prayer and then we'll be dismissed. Uh, Father, uh, thank you so much for your word. And uh, God, thank you for the example of Daniel uh, and helping us grasp who you are through Daniel's theology. And God, I pray that Tomorrow, the rest of this week, when we encounter how our lives unfold, which we don't know right now, but you know, when those moments happen, I pray that our knowledge of your sovereignty would affect the way we live, that it would drive us to your word, to prayer, that we'd recognize our tendencies to trust ourselves and to not trust you in your word. And ultimately to live lives of fearing you, submission to your ways, uh, so that you can continue to transform us. And God, I'm so thankful that you're doing that work in all of our lives here at Maranatha. Thank you for just a wonderful church family. And God, I pray you bless the rest of our fellowship here tonight as we pack up and head out. And uh, God, thank you for the ministries that are happening all around our facility tonight. And uh, God, we just pray that you'd receive, uh, always would receive the honor and the glory from what we're doing here. And uh, as always, I ask these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.